Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes after a couple of weeks hiatus, welcoming a new baby into the world. Not as conducive for podcasting, but we're glad to be back. Well, you look awake, and I take from that that you guys are on a regular sleeping schedule at your house? We are on a regular sleeping schedule, as in it's almost the same every night. It may not be regular as in what everybody else is doing, but we are making it through, <laughs> yeah. and uh, our little baby Lila is actually a pretty good sleeper, so I can't I can't complain. That's a good thing. So, but we are loving family of four life. Big adjustment, but we've had so many great family friends around us. It's been awesome. So we're very thankful and glad to be back on the podcast schedule. Well, we are continuing the series of books, and I think we both read today's book. And uh, I, I guess I should put out a disclaimer a little bit: is I don't know that either of us agree completely with this book, but I will say that it made me think about some hard subjects. And so I'm glad that we're going to talk about this book today. Yeah, I will say this is definitely a hiatus from our books that have influenced us. I this book may have influenced us, but it's too new to really be able to say. This is just an interesting book. I think it's a really great topic. And uh, on the Instagram account over the last week or so, we've been getting feedback on things that people want to talk about. And of course, we had planned this one before then, but I think this is right in line with with the impulse of we really need to be talking about some things that uh, are live issues. And so what Metaxas has done is he has captured what I think is one of the most pertinent talked about issues, and that is what is our role as Christians in engaging in civic culture, social, political, government, and what is the role of the church uh, when it relates to things like the government? So the premise of this book is really brilliant. It's called Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas. Eric Metaxas probably is best known for his biographical works, Martin Luther and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, both of whom mm -hmm. are going to play a starring role in this book. In fact, this is almost a mini biography of Bonhoeffer's confrontation right. with the Nazis leading up to World War II. And so you're going to get his really great biographical writing, but applied to a specific issue. So, so I love the premise. What would you say in a letter to the American church? We're actually going to come back to that. But as to what Eric Metaxas would say in a letter to the American church, he starts the book this way. I have written this book because I'm convinced the American church is at an impossibly and almost unbearably important inflection point. The question is, what does he think the inflection point is? Right. He, uh, and I think because of his work on Bonhoeffer and that biography, I think he has kind of looked around and his thesis is the next line, the parallels between where the American church is today and where the German church was in the 1930s, he says, are unavoidable and grim. And so his contention is that the American church, in its relationship with the culture, both civic and political around us, is facing some of the same defining questions that the Lutheran church in Germany faced in the 1930s with the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. Now, that first, that sounds like a very, anytime you use the word Nazi, you think, well, this is overblown. But he's, uh, he's not an alarmist. He's a man who's written deeply about that period. And he, he knows 
how did the Lutheran Church, the various pieces of it, how did the different groups of pastors react to what looked like, uh, at first Hitler looked like a good thing, then an alarming thing, and then before you know it, a horrific thing? And how did the various churches react to that? I think he looks at our culture and he sees the beginnings of things that, well, they look like they were good things, but now maybe not so good. And the question he's asking is, are we on the road to horrific things? And if so, will we make different choices than the German church? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the setting that he puts this conversation in. You have the Lutheran church facing what now looks like a very clear and apparent evil. It didn't quite look like that at the beginning, but that's kind of the point. You had people who stood out for opposing the Nazis early on, one of whom was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he's going to talk about that resistance movement throughout the entire book. And so the mm -hmm. impulse for us is, what should we be resisting now? What should the church be doing now that doesn't quite look as clear-cut as it'll probably look in hindsight? But we, we too, need to be the voices of opposition to some of these ghastly and evil things that are going on in our culture. He says in the early chapters that there are ideas in our culture right now that are actually at war with God himself. And to understand this book and to kind of get into this conversation, you have to appreciate that he has an overwhelmingly negative view of the trajectory of the culture that I think most readers are probably going to share. In, in fact, if you don't share that, you're probably not reading this book. So let's let's just put right. that out there. If if you're there, and there are a group of Christians, more progressive Christians, who actually don't think we have big cultural issues right now, if that is you, this probably is not the book for you. Because he's going to assume from the outset, hey, we all realize there's a problem here. The question is, what should we be doing about it? And that's where mm -hmm. he takes that model of Bonhoeffer's resistance to say, this is the kind of thing we need to be doing. Agree. I think you're right on that if you don't see the culture moving in a negative direction vis-a-vis -vis the church, you won't understand his thesis, and he will come across as a chicken look. You know, he's an alarmist. The sky is falling. Right. But if, however, you do agree and you say that this culture is diverging at a very rapid pace from what, what God says, and it's starting to impact people on a personal level, for example, he uses... Uh, the big examples of uh, widespread abortion and uh, gender therapies that uh, he would say are for prepubescent kids are basically mutilation of children would be the way he would describe it. So from his point of view, you're looking at something that's as personal and as serious as killing people. And so if you shared that, you will find this a real wake up call. And he's going to pose some questions that deserve to be thought through. So he starts to talk about the church. What is the role of the church? And that gets to the crux of the question of what we should be doing is what are the what's the rightful role of the church? What's the rightful role of the government? He he makes the point when the church is the church, when the church is really following the will of God, all of society is blessed. So if he, he's overtly making the case that actually the best way to live for a society is to do things God's way. That when the church is walking courageously, faithfully, living a godly life, all of society triumphs and flourishes. It's similar to the proverb, um, when the righteous triumph, the city rejoices. I, I think that's something that I think most people would agree with, but not everybody. And, and that's where we start to split off a little bit in this conversation of, 
not just if if the church had its way uh, in in totality, I'm not talking about a theocracy, but if people in the church lived as true and faithful Christians, it would be the best thing for society. That's kind of a contested claim in our world today. What do you think about that? Well, that's a that's a great point. I think he cues up. See what you think about uh, my reading of of this. One way to look at this is he cues up two visions of the church and its role in society. One is he quotes Bonhoeffer, and then he describes what I call a very widespread modern view of the church uh, as even the evangelical side of it. So the first would be Bonhoeffer's view, and Bonhoeffer had three thoughts that the church was the conscience of the state. And that's kind of what you're talking about. When we're functioning the way we're supposed to, we we operate as a very positive form of a conscience for the culture. Second, the church was obligated to help victims of the state. Now, with those two, I think you, you probably, most people are going to agree, but the third is that when the state does not do the right thing, then Christians must take action to correct the state. And that's where people might get get off of that boat. But that's one of the two views of the churches that he sets up. But let me pause there and say, how do you how do you uh, hear Bonhoeffer's three purposes of the church? Later in the in the book, he talks about there are causes so great that Christians have to get political and stand up against the government. So he he's very much right. in favor of this resistance after a certain point. And I, I I would agree with that to the extent that there are certainly things that the state is now imposing that Christians should resist. And I I think the core issue that he gets at, and and I don't know that I don't know that I would agree with him all the way through the book on this, but but I think he frames the issue right, which is the the freedom in the in the Constitution is freedom from a state established religion. Congress shall make no law establishing a, a state religion. So what's happened though is we we don't we no longer view the establishment clause that way or the free exercise clause that way. Instead, the government has now prohibited people from practicing their religion in certain ways. So now you're actually compelled on these in these areas. For example, taxpayer funded abortion. That's part of the dialogue right now is should we be using government money, taxpayer money to fund abortions? On the flip side, should you lose your medical license if you will not acquiesce to the progressive views of gender dysphoria, transgenderism, and all of that? Right. These are now coercive mechanisms from the state to keep you from acting on what you believe. And it's funny because we'll come back to a critique that he makes on Tim Keller early in the book, but they totally agree on this point. The religious culture in America is changing from you are free to practice your religion, free from the state imposing a religion to the state now in the name of religious freedom, quote unquote, is forcing you to believe and say certain things that we would consider religious topics. Right. So, so that framework, I think, is right. And I, and I think that's a really insightful point that he makes, that there are certain places where when the government goes too far, not even just as religious people, but just as people who believe in what our Constitution says, we should stand up and say, this is overreach. This is not right. This is not what we have outlined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I, I think he's right there. 
Yeah, I think the mechanism too, as I've observed it, is, uh, and this is something. I, this is one of the areas I think we should. I, sh- I hate to use the word pushback. I think we're not pushing back against something. We're just holding our ground. But I don't want you to generalize this to everything. He would go much further than I would. But let me give you an example of where I would go with this: is if you think about the church, shouldn't be involved in politics. Church should be involved in moral issues or evangelism, which we'll get to in a minute. But as the state pushes more and more subjects, and and it's like the growth of a city. You annex this land, you annex this land, and the city just keeps growing by annexing land. Well, if you just take certain issues and call them political, well, now that they're political, the church needs to stay out of it. Whereas if you look at the Gospels, you'd say, wait a minute, justice is not a political issue. Abortion is not a, quote, political issue. Oppression uh, is not a political issue. Slavery is not a political issue. So I think that that's the mechanism that's used to try to hem the churches in. So as opposed to the idea of, well, we need to push back and start a revolution, I think it's a little more, in my mind, Cole, of we just need to hold our ground and say, wait a minute, you can call that whatever you want, but the Bible speaks to it. And so call it political if you want to, but from our point of view, this is a matter of right and wrong, and our God speaks about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the mechanism that you've been used to hem the church in, is cl- declare something political and then tell the church, get out of politics. Exactly. And the definition of politics being that moving target, when right. when you say, well, p- you know, people of faith can disagree about issues of politics, okay, w- w- but we're not talking about certain kinds of economic approaches to the budget or things like that anymore. All of a sudden, when we say politics, the issues that people are talking about in every election are predominantly moral and social issues. And so, right. like you've said, that's a great little sleight of hand to say churches stay out of politics, and by politics we mean everything. Then that that's not a very workable system. Of course, the opposite though is true, and this is a pushback to Metaxas that. There are certain Christians who think that the church should be involved in absolutely everything. There's one way right. to view this. There, you, We can have no disagreement as Christians over things that really are political. And it goes back to the episode that we did about the five years of So We Speak. We, we actually take an approach where we do not think that the church should be partisan in the sense that we're saying, hey, the church and the Republican Party or the church and the Democrat Party are synonymous. But instead... We view our engagement on these issues through a principled lens. The Bible speaks to this issue, and therefore Christians should live this out. Christians should basically advocate for certain things that we believe God has said. That's a far cry, though, from um, believing that we need to speak authoritatively from the mouth of God to all of the political things that are going on in our country right now. Of course, the devil is in the details. It is very difficult to decide what things to speak to and what not. If you take the two predominant examples in Eric Metaxas's book, which would be abortion and uh, transgenderism, as you said earlier, why are these things dominant political issues? These are social moral issues in which Christians absolutely have things to say Uh, that we believe God has told us, this is the way that I've created you. This is the way society functions best. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. And so we should never back down on saying things like that. And in fact, we should work to see God's 
values played out in our society on these topics. But but that's a far cry from saying that those represent uh, what what would pr- more normally be called political issues. And so mm-hmm. part of this discussion is defining what what do you even mean by the term political. And on the one hand, you have Christians that think everything political should be intermingled with with the church. And I think maybe in a little bit of a straw man uh, that that Metaxas names, there are certainly people who maybe we would say don't see enough importance in some issues that are political for the church. Well, Tim Keller is famous for his approach to this, rightly or wrongly. You may agree with Keller. You may not agree with Keller, but he's pretty famous for having kind of a third way approach to this. How would you describe that and then talk about uh, Metaxas's differences with Keller. What's his critique of Keller on that issue? The the way Metaxas characterizes Keller, I, I don't think is very consistent with Keller. He says that, yeah, we don't have a left or a right. We have a third way. And that essentially Keller is telling people to stay, that the church should stay out of politics. And by that, he means the church shouldn't speak on things like abortion. That's not consistent at all with what Tim Keller actually taught. So you have this article that he cites uh, called How I Evolved on Tim Keller by James Wood in in First Things. It's interesting because there's there's a criticism of Keller's winsomeness and uh, his approach to culture in that article. Basically, his point is Keller's approach of we're not going to get into politics. We're going to effectively do evangelism might work in a neutral world where there's kind of a neutral playing field. But instead, we we don't exist in a in a neutral world anymore. We we exist in a negative world where the culture is actually openly hostile to Christianity, of which I would agree. I think Aaron Wren is the one who kind of popularized that term negative world. We certainly live in a culture, and if you're in Manhattan where Keller was, you certainly live in a culture that's actually not neutrally disposed towards Christianity. It is negatively uh, disposed towards Christianity. So the question is, is not, is Christianity true anymore? Is, is it good? Is it safe? Is it morally acceptable? Um, and I, and I think there are large portions of our culture that would say, no, it, it is negative. It has a negative impact. It's morally wrong to believe the things that Christians do. What's interesting is Keller was living in that world far before we were having these conversations and was doing great evangelism and contextualization in those uh, in those places. I, in, in one of the last interviews that Keller gave before he died, it was with Carrie Newhoff. They talk about this very topic and Keller lists out the social issues that the Bible speaks to. And it's funny because the ones he the ones he talks about are uh, racial justice economic justice, abortion, and sexuality. And he points out that if if you're really serious about two of those, you're considered a conservative. And if you're really serious about the other two, you're typically considered a liberal. And Christians should be very serious about all four. And, and that's really characteristic to me of Keller's approach is Yes, we are going to be principled. We're going to be serious about all of these. And if and if that means that in certain situations we look politically different to different groups of people, then come what may. On the, so I so I think Metaxas's Keller's version of the church should just stay out of politics is it, it's probably out there. I don't think it's what Tim Keller was doing. 
I think it's probably less people than uh, we think there are who think that the church should just completely stay out of being political. But but I'll come back to this in uh, later in the discussion of his book, because I do think he makes a great point on this later in a chapter called The Idol of Evangelism. But But just to the point of engagement, whether it's Keller or Metaxas or the Christian Nationalists or somebody else, the difference is often in degree more than it is in uh, the total ideology. Everybody right. believes that the Christians Christians in the church should be speaking into some things. It's just deciding which things the church should be taking a stand on and where maybe we leave that up to the conscience of believers. That's the real that's the really difficult part of the discussion. I agree. I think that's a nuanced way of looking at it is there's a very broad spectrum and uh, I, th- but I think the difference between Metaxas and Keller is one of choosing which issues to speak into. And Metaxas would be more, Keller would be less. But Keller's not a minimalist. Just queuing up this discussion of the his ninth chapter on evangelism, I would cue it up this way because Keller was an evangelist. But he wasn't a minimalist. And what do I mean by that is Keller didn't just preach, you need to believe in Jesus in your heart, and then you're going to be saved, and you're a Christian, and let's leave all the other stuff as secondary stuff. If you listen to his sermons, he's preaching all of the word. He's preaching It's like what the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, I, my conscience is clear of the blood of of all men because I have revealed to you the whole counsel of God. Keller talked about sexuality, talked about justice. He talked about uh, gossip. He taught, in other words, he talked about wherever the scriptures took him. So it wasn't a minimalist version of evangelism. In other words, he wasn't going to say to those Manhattanites, I just want you to believe in Jesus and and all the rest of this stuff, we'll sort it out later. He came up front and said, let me tell you what it means to believe in Jesus. This is what you're buying into. This is the Lord that you're going to serve. So I do think it's important to say that so that Keller doesn't get lumped into uh, some of the things Metaxas wants to say about a segment of modern evangelicalism. Keller, I felt like, painted a very good picture of the Jesus that you would be following. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this brings me to what I think are two really strong points in Metaxas's book. And they're both in this chapter on the idol of evangelism. The first one is what you were just talking about. So he's pushing back against people who believe that evangelism is really the only tool we have as Christians to influence society. All we can really hope for is people to convert. And if they do, then that is our social strategy. And and, and this is accurate. There, there are Christians out there who believe we should do nothing more really than evangelize. And if people's hearts change, then they will change and society will change. But if we don't get their soul then we shouldn't expect anything to happen differently in our society. That is a true paradigm, and and Metaxas is right to push back on that. That that minimalism of evangelism is all we have really sells short uh, the full biblical teaching on the way that Christians can be influential in their society. So, for example, one easy example in the early church is 
Christians fundamentally changed society because they took in babies that were being left to be exposed, their version of abortion. And right. Christians single-handedly changed the, the, the social dynamics of society, the ethnographic dynamics of society, because they were rescuing these babies and starting orphanages and respecting human life and caring for the sick. That is something they believe that they should do and get other people to do, whether or not they're Christians. And I think you're seeing a really broad coalition form of Christians plus tons of other people of all different political persuasions against the transgender movement. So you don't have to be a Christian to think we shouldn't be giving permanently uh, life-altering chemicals or you know, essentially sterilizing people, prepubescent children. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that that's wrong. And what you're seeing is you've got atheists, you've got liberals, you've got conservatives who are all believing that this is a moral evil. We should stand up for this. This is not right to be doing to children. And all the legislation that goes around it and protects it should be voted down. The people that are advocating it should be defunded. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. And in fact, Christians shouldn't make other people become Christians to get on board that social cause. And we shouldn't be afraid to partner with other people on that social cause either, because um, if those people become Christians, that's wonderful. But it is also a social good that we just stop mutilating kids in the name of this wicked gender ideology. So that's a really good point. This, the second one I would point to is he says on page 79 – this overemphasis on evangelism uh, leads many people today to refuse to comment on anything controversial or political if they think it might conceivably interfere with the possibility of leading someone to salvation. So on, on the on the one hand, you have, hey, so evangelism is really our only tool. On the second one, and rightfully, I think he nails this point, the belief that we should never wade into anything controversial because it might uh, – take away our chance to share the gospel with someone is a very mistaken way of viewing the world and society. Yeah, I think just to use a biblical example of what you're talking about, one of the things that's really hit me hard ever since I first read it was, if you remember, when Paul goes into Ephesus and so many people become Christians and not just become Christians, they actually give up their old way of life and they stop buying these idols, these little amulets, which I know it's easy for us to say, yeah, well, that's dumb. You shouldn't have idols. Well, you need to remember these were family gods. It wasn't just, I've got an idol and now I'm not going to worship that. I'm going to worship Jesus. It was giving up your cultural and family heritage. You know, they, they could have kept their little family gods and also been Christian, but they didn't. And they stopped buying them so much so cold that, as you know, there was a riot because they massively impacted the economy. Now, fast forward to today. And so we have a lot of people that are Christian and we have a pornography business that is billions of dollars a year and growing. And so my point is not to be negative here. It's simply to say that the gospel has to make a bigger difference than I believe in Jesus and now I'm going to heaven. And don't offend me by talking about my household gods and don't offend me by talking about my pornography or my sexuality or the injustices I'm perpetuating or my greed. In other words, 
that those were offensive things that were being said. And when people came to Christ, they changed their lifestyle. And I think if you don't see that happening, that's probably an indicator that we're not uh, having the impact. We're not evangelizing the way that the New Testament was evangelizing. So I'm not really complaining so much as I'm saying I have to ask the question. If we are afraid to talk about the hard things and say this is part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, afraid that people will turn away and say, oh, you're a hater and you're a bigot. I don't want to follow this Jesus Christ. Then are we really turning people into the kind of people that the New Testament was? And that's that's what concerns me is I'm not a big fan of let's just go out and offend people. Obviously, that's not what we're saying. But I think Metaxas nails this, that if you have that minimalist view, what are you really creating? You know, are you really creating Christians that will change the culture or have you just slapped a, a, a coat of paint on on someone mm-hmm. and let them go on their way? Mm-hmm. And I don't know how widespread that is. I'm not saying that's an epidemic in the church, but I do think that to the extent that that view of evangelism is held, we will continue to see the ineffectiveness of the church that we are seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly true. And and his point even extends to the group of people that are saying the the behavioral outcomes of salvation are so minimal that I'm actually not going to talk about any of those things so that I have a chance to share the gospel with someone. When you do that, you have so gutted the gospel of its content that you you actually don't really have a gospel to present anymore. So it's one of those, um, it's one of two bad outcomes. On the one hand, you never say anything about anything. You never have any law. You never have any condemnation. You never have any sin. And then you wonder why people don't feel like they need Jesus. Well, Jesus came to save you from your sins. If you don't have any sin, then yeah, you wouldn't need Jesus, but you do have sin. So the whole, I'm going to preserve my platform. I'm going to make sure I don't offend anybody who is fleshly so that I can present the gospel is kind of one of those you you can do that, but then you won't have any gospel to present. And then the other bad outcome for that is uh, you have people that do that, and then the people become Christians and then find out what Christians actually believe, and they have this crazy shell-shocked moment of the bait and switch. Oh, I was, you know, I was almost lied to and manipulated to believe, and then you find out what Christians actually believe, and this is, I was sold a bill of goods. This is not, this is not what I expected. Mm-hmm. Those, those would be false conversions. That, that would be people coming in on a false premise, not coming to Christ, but some caricatured Christ that's made to look appetizing to a fleshly appetite. And, and both of those are bad. And I think Metaxas rightfully pushes back on that. Again, it, that doesn't mean that Christians have to come out in a maximalist stance against everything. Uh, but I do think it means that we don't shy away from things in the hope that we can outsmart God in the way that we should evangelize people. Uh, God knew what he was doing. Uh, he's not surprised that the gospel itself can be offensive. But I would side with Keller here, maybe against Metaxas, although I think he kind of overdoes this attack. There is something to not making the gospel more offensive than it already is. We don't want to add offense to the gospel unnecessarily, but we certainly don't want to try to take away or shade or give the gospel a facelift 
so that it in and of itself is less offensive. Because if we do that, then it is actually not the gospel at all. Right. You know, probably the the most impactful quote to me is at the end of this chapter we're talking about. And it's on uh, page 84, and I'll read it. And I've thought about this before, but he puts it in great words. He says, we pretend, and I'm, I personalize this, I pretend that I would have spoken out for the Jews in Bonhoeffer's day, or that we, I would have spoken out against the slave trade in Wilberforce's today. But are we speaking out today on the issues that are of no less importance to God Again, to God, mm-hmm. issues that that are legitimate to the, to our Lord in our time. If not, we're deceiving ourselves, and we're kidding ourselves that we would have been better and we would have spoken out. And I found that very compelling on a personal level to just really think that through and ask myself some hard questions. Uh, again, it doesn't turn me into a raving, uh, you know, going to go out there and condemn everything wrong in our culture. But it does ask me the fundamental question: Is is my Am I speaking out on the right issues? And if I'm not, if I'm not speaking out, is it because I have an excuse to say, well, I want to further the gospel, or am I just being a coward? Mm -hmm. In other words, looking back, I don't think any of us would say, yeah, if I were in Nazi Germany, I probably would have just been quiet and gone about my business. I would have been too afraid to speak up. None of us say that, but we're probably answering that question with our lives today. I think that's the strongest part of the book. I think that makes the book really worth reading is the main point that Metaxas is making over and over again is just live like a Christian. Live like what you believe is right is right. Say what you believe God has told you to say. We can't keep living like, oh, I believe this is true for me, but I wouldn't dare say that this is true for other people. A lot of Christians live like relativists. I think this is true. I think this is what God said, but it's only somehow true for Christians. No, if we if we believe God has said it and we believe that it's God's plan for human life, then it's true for everybody. Life either matters or it doesn't. God's mm-hmm. design is either good or it isn't. Too many Christians are living like relativists. I will have my own internal faith but I wouldn't dare impose that on someone else. And I think the strongest part of this book is Metaxas is saying, stop living like that. Live like a Christian. If 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 the amount of people who claim to be Christians in this country would live like Christians, then a lot of these social issues that we're talking about would disappear overnight. They wouldn't be tolerated anymore. They wouldn't be financed anymore. They wouldn't be expedient anymore. But you have this seductive lie that many Christians, many people who consider themselves Christians believe, where uh, you essentially have kind of a privatized faith. This is right for me, but I don't think it's necessarily right for you. It reminds me there's a documentary coming out. uh, I think it's called The Essential Church that John MacArthur's church made. I haven't seen it. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I've watched a couple of little clips and interviews of it. And uh, it, it'll be interesting. It's about COVID and the fact that they defied the government, and didn't shut down their church. But in one of the previews, somebody's talking to John MacArthur, and they bring up the fact that John MacArthur and Gavin Newsom actually debated, or they were they were at least on a television program together years ago. I think this is when Newsom was the the uh, mayor of San Francisco. 
And John MacArthur starts talking about things and somehow it happens that Gavin Newsom says something like, oh, well, you say that you're because you're a Christian. I'm a Christian, too. And John MacArthur says, well, then if you're a Christian, what authority are you appealing to? Because Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God and the Bible says this, this, this and this. And then immediately Gavin Newsom starts backpedaling because it's, it's clear to everybody watching. He's not that kind of Christian. Like not not that kind of Christian that believes that there is a standard of what God has said that applies equally to all. He's the kind of Christian that says that because it's expedient to say I'm a Christian, but then believes whatever he wants to believe. And I think Metaxas is nailing that kind of belief to the wall. If you're a Christian, then you've got to believe what God says. The Bible is our ultimate authority. God is who we serve. We don't look to the approval of anybody else. We look to God's approval. And we should live like that. I think that's the strongest part of this book. Now, the weakest part of this book is the the problem is figuring out where and how to live that out in a consistent way. What things to speak about, what things not to speak about. I would like a little bit more nuance because I think that is where the discussion right. is. I, I think a lot of people would agree with, with Metaxas on this, but maybe would disagree on what things are rightly considered political in which things are in the realm of, uh, no, all Christians need to believe pretty much the same way on this. Secondly, where do you make exchanges of, hey, we we really do expect Christians to act like Christians and non-believers to act like non-believers. And uh, we can't expect non-believers to act like Christians, but there are certain social goods we can't expect them to adopt. You know, So right. some of the finer points of this are where maybe we would disagree. And I think that's maybe the weakest part of the book, but certainly the main thesis of Christians, we've got to just start trusting what God has said and trusting God with the consequences of saying it and believing it. That's a powerful point. I, I would agree exactly with that, the, both the weak and the strong. Uh, the thing I would add is I really, what I valued in this book is not that it is going to lay out what he probably intends is laying out a program for Christians to pursue. I'm not sure I would sign up for that, but I did take this very personally. And I thought to myself, well, I don't know what all Christians should do, but I need to pay attention to some of this and do a gut check on a few things and said, am I uh, too timid? Am I speaking out? Am I speaking out in a way that's gracious, but am I willing to speak out? In other words, I want to apply this ideas to me and how I'm behaving rather than get on a soapbox and tell the rest of the church, you guys need to start doing this. That may be true, but I felt like the most impactful part of it was for me to turn the mirror around and look at myself in the mirror and let's just make sure that I'm being faithful. And so for that, I thank Metaxas because it was uh, it's not often that you read a book and it turns into a mirror. And I know that's not what he intends out of this book, but it was certainly a good takeaway for me. I think he probably does intend that from this book. I mean, it's pretty audacious to call it a letter to the American church. But it's like that. I think there's a meme that's been floating around for years now, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever. Um, if Paul saw the American church today, they'd be getting a letter. This may not be the letter that Paul <laughs> would write, but it's a very interesting letter and worth thinking about. And as we've hopefully conveyed here, not the perfect book. Uh, there's things that we disagree with, but there's really things that we appreciate as well. And as short as it is, I would say it's worth a read. I agree because, and, and again, it's not so much don't read it with the do I buy into everything or do I not. Read it as a stimulus 
to think about what we believe and how I'm acting. I think that can be very useful to us, even if you don't sign up for Metaxas's entire program. I think it can still be very useful. So Cole, if it came down to writing a letter to the American church, uh, you alluded that uh, we would we would answer that question. What would be uh, in your letter? One of the things in your letter to the American church? Well, as I said, I, I agree with some of the things in his letter for sure that I would want to be in there. Um, I'm, I might push back in the opposite direction from Metaxas. One of the things I wrote down is stop paying attention to unnecessary divisions. There are going to get there are going to be fewer and fewer real Christians in the coming days. And there's a whole cottage industry on attacking Christians who believe the exact same things on the gospel and believe slightly different things in intramural disputes. We have got to stop majoring in the minors and band together as Christians on a lot of these bigger issues. We're going to need each other. We are going to want the fellowship across denominational lines, traditions, all of that. Uh, certainly on false gospels, we're going to want to push back. Certainly in areas where we have major first order disagreements, we're going to need to work those out. But there is coming a day where we are not going to have the luxury of having 12 different, very, very idiosyncratic versions of Christianity to gripe right. between. We're just going to need each other as a capital C church. So I would say, stop paying attention to some of these unnecessary divisions. Let's get clear on the majors, and then let's get about God's business in the world. And secondly, uh, on that point, let's stop paying attention to people who are basically profiting off of turning Christians against each other. Th th this is a this is a phenomenon that is being used by non-Christians to sabotage and undermine the Christian church, and yet we are falling for it. There are a lot of Christians who all they want to listen to and read is people attacking other Christians. Let, let's let's stop making that a profitable, expedient way of making a living. So that, that would be my first thing. And then the, the second thing I would say is don't take anything for granted in your worldview. The, the, the culture and the church are diverging at such a rate that what is considered kind of an American worldview, classical liberalism, a lot of the things that were overlapping with most Christian people believing them, most Christian people could participate, you know, all of that, that's coming to an end. So I would say don't take anything for granted in our worldview anymore. There's there's a lot of things that were kind of embedded in most Christian people's worldview that given enough time have led to a lot of the cultural decay that we're seeing now. So uh, an easy example would be self-expression as the highest form of identity is not something that people would necessarily name in their worldview, but it's the same thing that has led to the sexual revolution and a lot of the cultural things we're seeing. A lot of our churches actually operate that way, um, that if you can just come and have your tailor-made emotional experience, that's what true spirituality is about. Th those, those run from the same spring. And right. if you believe the one, you're probably going to believe the other. And so that's what I would say is we actually need to get back to a truly Christian worldview, not just the kinds of expressions and uh, movements and culturally acceptable practices that Christians have been doing.
over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, don't, don't take things in your worldview for granted. Examine them, make them line up with scripture, not just what quote unquote Christians have believed in the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, I think those are really, really good points. I think that second point in particular is subtle, but it's having huge impact. That is one that's going to, the fruit of that is going to be very ugly if we aren't careful and realize how insidious that that idea is and how it's crept into the church as well. You know, for me, I would go on a different topic and I'd talk again a little bit about evangelism. One of the things that I see fairly widespread with all sincerity I don't doubt the sincerity of uh, people that are about this. In fact, I know how it can come about and been tempted myself for this. I mean, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody other than myself, but there's a, sometimes I think we, we think it's in our power. We wouldn't say this, but we act this way. It's in our power to get people to believe in Jesus Christ, to evangelize. If we say the right things, if we don't say the wrong things, if we have the right community, if we reach your felt needs, we can get you to become a Christian. And then we will trust the Holy Spirit to turn you into a disciple, somebody who actually looks like Christ. That's the essence of the church growth movement, in my view. I'm giving you my, my point of view, is that we make Christians, Holy Spirit, you turn them into, you tell them all the rest of the stuff. The reality of this is, is we don't have the power to make Christians, and it's it's gotten unhealthy, as Metaxas points out, and that is that there are things we won't say because we think, well, if we did that, we would commit the cardinal sin of keeping someone from becoming a Christian. The implicit assumption in that is that you can actually control that, and you really can't. Mm -hmm. Jesus in John chapter 6 taught something that caused thousands of his followers to turn away. If you or I did that today, people would say, well, look what you just did. You're responsible for people not coming to Christ. That's just not true. We need to trust the Holy Spirit with whether people come to Christ and the impact of that. And I think if we don't preach the whole counsel of God, then there's no way they are ever going to turn into actual disciples. So I would say get back to a reliance and a confidence that we will simply speak the whole counsel of God. Let's teach the whole Bible and let's trust the spirit to bring people to Christ and to make the discipleship process, the sanctification in them. And let's stop being so arrogant as to believe that we can do this. Now, I don't believe it's overt arrogance. I don't think anybody thinks, oh, I'm a wonderful speaker and I can bring people to Christ. I'm not saying that people are doing that. But if you look at how we're acting, that's exactly what we're doing. And particularly if you look at what we're not doing, is we think that we can entice people to Christ. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.